Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, brought to you by thebattleground.eu. We're going to talk British politics. We're going to talk climate crisis in Europe and the United States. I think I wanted to mention at the beginning, this is a sort of USA-centered thing and may not be of interest to those of you in Europe, but in case you're interested in exactly how weird things are in North America, it was reported in the newspapers this week that a school district in Missouri in a, in a town called Cassville had decided that they were going to bring back corporal punishment, which has been mostly eliminated in the United States for good reason. I mean, there's not a shred of evidence that it has any positive effect on behavior, but it is humiliating and traumatizing. And it's the kind of thing that conservatives like to indicate that they really want to get back to the good old days where other people's children were getting battered to make them behave better. It's one of those bampot ideas that gets tossed around. It sort of illustrates one of the oft-repeated elements of populism is this desire to cause pain to people you don't like. I mean, I think it's one of the elements that cements the symbolic chain of populism at the low end. I don't know how much... English schools, I think, were famous for battering students like this, and I think that you've mostly gotten rid of that sort of thing, but it does probably resonate with English culture as well. Yeah, sadly. There probably is a base for bringing it back in this country in some form. I think most of it was phased out in the 80s. No, I think all of it was phased out in the 80s, actually. There's still support for it, unfortunately. It's like the Daily Mail readers. It's the kind of thing that they all go on about. And things were better when children knew their place and so on, as if there was a time where children really did know their place, and quite rightly, they didn't. But it brings to mind that maxim from the Anglo-American paleocon John Derbyshire that what hurts helps, and what helps hurts. And that really kind of sums up the feeling behind this sort of thing. Yeah, it brings to mind, too, Margaret Thatcher's notorious talk of the need for the short, sharp shock. Apropos of nothing that we've really been talking about, I was looking through some records the other day, and I came across my copy of Chaos UK's Short, Sharp Shock 12-inch. The cover is a photograph of a guy being choked out by police, and I realized at a certain point that I knew the guy that it was someone that I'd actually met in the UK when I lived there in the mid-80s. So it seems like, as far as one can tell from the vantage point of North America, that the leadership race in the Conservative Party seems to be coming to a head. How does that seem to be shaking up? Yeah, we'll have a new Prime Minister in a week or so, and it looks pretty certain that Liz Truss will win with a landslide among Tory members. It's pretty horrifying. Be frank, she's going forward on a platform to do absolutely nothing about the cost of living crisis, including the terrible energy crisis that we're facing. This winter, people are going to see their household fuel bills skyrocket, and millions of people are going to be thrown into energy poverty. Many of them are going to have to choose between eating and heating. The UK is being hit particularly hard because of the setup of our energy industry, the way. The utility companies were privatised the separation of wholesale and retail and the supply chain structures that they depend upon. After the lockdowns, we've faced a, a supply chain crisis like many countries. That's also been compounded by things like Brexit and by other factors like climate change, like the rest of the world. At the same time, the Ukraine war has exacerbated that. But at a more fundamental level, what we saw during the lockdowns was Russia wasn't maintaining its fuel supply chains, that kind of thing. And many countries weren't as well. Maintenance was put off and demand was dropping in the West. So Russia pivoted further to East Asia and LATAM markets as a result. And that's really the more fundamental cause of all of this. But the Ukraine war has just heightened 
the crisis. The energy crisis that's going on in Europe, and once again, it's clearly at least partly related to the ongoing war in the Ukraine, plays also into the climate crisis, which is becoming more and more evident in Europe. The European Drought Observatory has said that drought conditions are something like the worst in 500 years. In Europe, there's definitely warming going on. I mean, there's that incident in the Dolomites a month or two ago where I think seven people were killed because a part of a glacier just cracked off and fell on them. That's the kind of thing that's going to keep going. I mean, there's been a lot of indication of glacial shrinkage and stuff like that. In the United States, it seems like most of the country isn't currently on fire anymore, which is definitely a change for the better. There's still drought conditions in the West. There's apparently been pretty torrential rain in Texas, which is sort of the other side of the coin, but really, in a lot of respects, not much better. Sometimes you hear people talking about a sort of poly crisis. There's a crisis that's made up of a whole bunch of different components, one of which is the rise of populism, which is a cause and an effect, one of which is the energy crisis, which is both a cause and, in a certain sense, an effect or a sort of exacerbation. It's being exacerbated by the situation. One is the environmental crisis, which becomes both a cause and an effect. It's hard for people to grok all of the stuff that's going on. So you increasingly talk to people and they're just like, well, I just can't think of any of it because it's all so upsetting or so intractable. Yeah, the UK is is facing droughts like other European countries. We've you know, we've had the hottest days on record, even surpassing the nineteen seventy-six record, I think. Going over forty degrees. And yeah, some parts of the country have seen wildfires, which is unusual. We've seen situations of lakes and rivers being threatened in a, not in a particularly drastic way. You know, some parts of the River Thames have got particularly shallow as a result of this when you go out into the, the sticks outside of London. It's a sign things are going to get pretty bad. To bring it back to politics a little bit, it gets back to the question of the rightward shift of politics in Europe and North America. And the thing that you sort of worry about, I mean, among all the things there are to worry about, is the degree to which this rightward shift and the change in the tone and tenor of politics has simply reduced the systemic resources for responding to crises like this. And just to give you a sort of North America-centered example, one of the things that's been roiling politics in this country for the last couple of weeks is that the FBI executed a search of Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's Florida resort, because Trump had retained a lot of documents from the White House, many of which had security clearances of top secret, the kind of security clearances that you have to have nuclear secrets clearance to actually look at. The National Archives had recovered some of them. In case it's unclear to people, or in case you don't know the legal dimensions of this in the United States, when you're president, you don't really own your papers. You have to send them to National Archives. And if you want to keep some of them, there's a process. So Trump's defense of what he did in this respect is that he had declared on Twitter that these papers were declassified. And somebody had to tell him, you can't just declare it on Twitter. Just because you say it on Twitter doesn't make it so. You're not king. You're president of uh, electoral democracy, at least for the time being. And so he was like, well, Barack Obama kept a bunch of his papers. But yeah, Barack Obama went through the process that you have to go through where the stuff is vetted and people in the National Archives or whatever can raise objections to whether this stuff should be kept in a non, relatively non-secure 
environment. I mean, obviously, Mar-a-Lago is going to be less secure than the National Archives, I think it's fair to say. It's funny because conservatives have been up in arms about this. There's been this sort of like defund the FBI type of thing, which is oddly reminiscent of defund the police, but kind of different. But the conservatives are not exactly sure how they're supposed to feel about this because there was the whole but her emails thing about Hillary Clinton. And this seems like immeasurably worse from the perspective of the security aspect of it or the maintenance of official secrets type of situation. So I really feel like, I mean, I know that we sort of compare notes on this from time to time, but I feel like in the table of totally crazy populist politics, I mean, you guys have been marching right along, but I'm afraid that we've gone above you in the table. Just sorry to say. Yeah, I don't even know what the protocols over here for this kind of thing are comparably. I I presume that a lot of papers are simply stashed away and then they're released gradually in decades to come. Or they end up in archives mysteriously and then some investigators from Declassified UK go through them at some point. I mean, the comparison that comes to mind with Trump, though, historically, would be someone like Nixon and his kind of secretive conspiratorial behavior around the recordings of his meetings and that kind of thing. But we don't know if this is Trump being Machiavellian. Given his record of being quite erratic, it seems unlikely. Is he just a hoarder? Well, he is. I mean, that's it's, it's apparently notorious. He is. And apparently some of these documents, you know, he was going through them and annotating them or whatever. It's once again unclear exactly why. Some of these are apparently the letters that he exchanged with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, he and Kim Jong-un had a weird sort of bromance. It's well known that Donald Trump really loves and seeks to emulate dictators. This is why he you know, has a sort of bromance with Vladimir Putin. It's probably also why there was that picture of him caressing the weird glowing orb in Saudi Arabia at one point. But to get back to a more serious take on this, what legitimate reason could he have for wanting to hold on to these? And he keeps asserting in court that he has every right to and but why that's a very odd sort of question i mean to, just to get this back to the uk a little bit it's interesting to look at the way politics in the united states works vis-a-vis -vis the way politics in in europe work if you look at germany for instance there's some crazy stuff and every now and then a kind of unwillingness to go along with accepting german history in the 20th century some of that comes up especially with afd and and Pegida and some of those people. But by and large, German politics seems to go along on a relatively policy-oriented sort of track. France, somewhat less so, especially with the increase in popularity of the National Front, people like that. But it really seems like the UK, especially since Thatcher has moved sort of in our direction. So, I mean, what's the difference between Liz Truss and Boris Johnson from your perspective? There are cultural differences which are more interesting than the personal differences, which are obvious. Johnson is from a section of the ruling class in a different way to Truss's class position, where she is from a semi-Northern background and is aspiring to be part of the ruling class. And she's a millionaire. She's not as rich as Rishi Sunak, and she's not as posh as Boris Johnson and people like David Cameron and George Osborne. But what we're seeing in the Tory party is a shift away from the old Etonians and a move back to what you saw in the Tory party for 40, 50 years of kind of lower middle class to upper middle class leaders who make it big financially. Thatcher was a good example of that. It's also true of other figures, Ted Heath and so on. 
the aristos, as you might call them, were not very popular for a long time. But in terms of political differences, Boris Johnson is much more of a chameleon, much more willing to break the rules within the party about ideology. So he's willing to implement quite drastic measures sometimes, as we saw throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the furlough scheme in which there were big payments doled out to people who couldn't work because of the lockdowns, in some cases matching the income of sole traders, that kind of thing. Whereas Liz Truss is a kind of free market libertarian. Yeah, her association with Britannia Unchained, a book that was calling for tearing up the welfare state and a book that claims that the British working class is incredibly lazy, that kind of thing, and that we need more of these short, sharp shocks, as it were. Kind of uber-Thatcherite vision of things. And she's definitely a believer in the free market and keeps a very narrow range of advisors selected on the basis of ideological purity, supposedly. So what we might expect from this is that she will be much more dogmatic in a way that Johnson wasn't, and arguably more dogmatic than Thatcher was. Thatcher was actually quite a pragmatic figure, despite her reputation for not compromising. You know, she did nationalise things when she had to. She nationalised British Leyland. She imposed a windfall tax, that's forgotten. She didn't cut taxes massively straight away. She brought down public spending gradually and tried to get control of inflation, though she never did. And this trust is quite a departure from all of that. She's a kind of quasi-Reaganite figure in some ways, but still as pernicious as Thatcher. She lacks that optimism, that sunny optimism that we discussed in the last podcast that Reagan kind of projected. It's funny now, like people are kind of looking back to Reagan in the United States, very much like forgetting what Reagan was really all about in a lot of respects. I mean, he set the capital gains tax at roughly the same level that Barack Obama did. And granted, he was cutting it. Barack Obama was raising it. But there's an argument made that Barack Obama is really not that far to the left of Ronald Reagan. And certainly the same thing can be said about Hillary Clinton. Reagan amnestied migrants, right? Yeah, and he had a, a rather more sort of decent view of human beings. That said, he also mined Nicaraguan harbors. He was all about funding for Contras who were extremely violent and fascist. But that's really the change that's happened in politics in this Western Atlantic world. In both the UK and the United States, you have this weird synergy between a decayed elite. I mean, I think it's funny that it's the sort of Etonian, old Etonian people because they're uh, are in, in a lot of respects, kind of a spent force, but they have synergized with a lower middle class angst with respect to slow growth, probably uh, lack of opportunities for profit, lack of opportunities for advancement. Not that those were ever very great, but if you had a little bit of money, they were definitely better than they were for other people. And in the United States, there's a sense in which the goal of dismantling the welfare state in the UK takes up their attention. Whereas since we don't have that very much in the United States, what we get is the drive to get rid of abortion. I think one of the consequences of this, and I'm not alone in thinking this, this is not my political news or anything, that the rush to get rid of abortion in the wake of the Supreme Court decision has rebounded against the Republicans. So three months ago, the talk was midterm elections, the Democrats are going to get their lunch handed to them. Usually the incumbent party does anyway. But Democrats have now been running on access to abortion. And it didn't help the Republican cause that within a week or two of the Supreme Court 
decision and a bunch of laws in various states that were set to go into effect if the Supreme Court made a decision limiting abortion rights or saying that they were not constitutionally protected. There was a case in Ohio, I think it was down in Columbus, where there was a 10-year-old rape victim who had gotten pregnant. And according to the law in Ohio, she did not have access to abortion. And she had to go to Indiana, the state next door, which is way crazier than Ohio in a lot of respects. I mean, Indiana is a really weird place, for those of you not familiar with the cultural geography of the United States, to get an abortion there. People are justly horrified that the, I mean, you may, whatever you think about abortion, and the right to abortion is the right not to have the state compel you to have a nine-month-long life-threatening medical procedure, invasive medical procedure. But however you view abortion, the outcome in which a 10-year-old is compelled to carry her rapist's baby to term is disgusting and very hard to defend, even to people of a more conservative political caste. I mean, uh, getting rid of abortion rights isn't really necessarily all that popular in terms of the electorate at large. That having been said, the fact that this is kind of stuff is on the table really differentiates American politics from the way things are in Europe, where it's just not even a matter of discussion in most European countries, except maybe Hungary. Yeah, I mean, in, in the UK, we've moved on from this debate a long time ago. I mean, now it's just a kind of like technicalities around the law, you know, about whether or not the law needs to be reformed to improve issues around, say, the rights of disabled people, for example, all kinds of minutiae around this. But the pro-life movement internationally has very little reach in places like the UK and Western Europe. We have moved on. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the fact that, that this is such a big issue in the largest of the industrialized North Atlantic democracies, that is the United States, is an indication of the degree to which civilized impulses or what have you are taken up, try to keep things from getting really out of hand. And it's hard then to get oxygen to issues like climate change, which are a big thing. You know, it came out recently. We were talking in the last podcast or the one before about Joe Manchin and his disinclination to get on with the Biden program. Well, he was convinced to sign the climate change bill. But it turns out that one of the blandishments was that the government would then fast track this shale gas pipeline that's supposed to go through his home state, and which a lot of people in his home state are not very happy about because it's going through some very environmentally sensitive areas. And that having been said, it's very difficult to get the appropriate political momentum to talk about that when so much of the media environment, the political environment is taken up with compulsory pregnancy and Donald Trump's holding on to secret documents or whatever. Yeah, whereas over here, it's more so the case that the Tories are fixated on economic matters, albeit with no solutions for anyone. They don't quite resort to the same kind of red meat issues, you might call it, except there's a few exceptions to that. One would be immigration, occasionally trans rights as well. Certainly within the Tory party, that's an issue which people are mobilized upon. But most of the population is fairly liberal on that issue. Hey, Brexit, at least you've got your sovereignty back. Yeah, Brexit was the big one. That was the big, probably the biggest cultural dividing line in the country for a very long time. Yeah, and it continues to be. We're still defined by it and probably will be for a very long time. Brexit is the perfect example of the old adage about being careful what you wish. I mean, it's the same way with abortion in this country. Once you get it, 
then you have to live with the consequences of it. And the consequences of it are going to be playing out in, in I think, very unfortunate ways on both sides of the Atlantic for, for quite some time. Definitely. All right. Well, I think that's your lot for this time around. We'll be back in two weeks. Hopefully things will have gotten better, although I don't know why you'd think that they would, but uh, that's all from us. Thank you and goodbye.